Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. What's happening, everybody? Fresh episode of Crossed Up. I'm Bob Blankel alongside Anthony Sanfilippo, and we are talking about the Philadelphia Phillies, who for at least a brief moment in time uh, gave the city of Philadelphia something to talk about in terms of its baseball team, something positive to talk about, but they obviously take a step back uh, in the third game of the series against the Cubs at Wrigley Field in an 8-3 loss. Anthony, how are you today? I'm great. It's a uh, Wankel Thursday. It's a Wankel Thursday. So, oh, that, that doesn't quite have the same no, ring to it, does it? No. Uh, yeah. So uh, before we started recording here, I said all it takes is a little bit of a public shaming to get my attention. And here we are doing some uh, stuff with some other podcasts and everything, you know, and yeah. people ask me, hey, do you have any time? And I always try to make time for people. Uh, but unfortunately, I haven't made a lot of time for for this show, I guess. And so you let me know about it. You're right. And, and I was wrong. And so here we are. It's only been three weeks. It's not been that long. Is that really what it's been? Three weeks? I actually <laughs> thought to myself, I was like, we did this like a week and a half ago, didn't we? Yeah, the four- I think the 14th of June was the last yeah, time. So, yeah, we're doing we're our recording. monthly check-in here. Um, <laughs> you know, so it's weird, right? Like, you know, because you knew we were going to record. We talked about doing this on Wednesday. And, and here we are now. Uh, you knew they were going to be you, – you knew they were going to lose. You knew that, that all the positive stuff that we were talking about was going to take a little bit of a hit before we got together. And sure. That's exactly what happened. But, you know, I guess rather than react to the most immediate thing, uh, I guess the right thing to do here is kind of step back, look at this big picture. And, you know, I guess you, we've seen the Phillies, uh, you know, before uh, the third game against the Cubs, they, they win four out of five. The bats start to kind of come alive a little bit win a series against a good Padres team. Like, are you buying a, uh, I, I guess, the positive trajectory of where this team is headed right now? My answer simply is yes. And and I've been on this train for a little while now. Um, I, I felt all along that the biggest issues this team had were team defense and the bullpen. And that's kind of what, you know, what's reared its ugly head. And I remember we were excited about the bullpen maybe being better coming out of spring training. And then after the first couple of weeks, we realized, okay, it's better than last year, but it's still not a good bullpen. Um, and, and then when I look at, you know, they slogged through the first two months of the season, both with, both with injuries and inconsistency. But I really felt that, you know, when they flipped the calendar to June 1st, that they started to play a much better brand of baseball. And they're, what, 30 games since then, and they're 16 and 14. You say, well, it's only two games over 500, Anthony. It's not that great. But when you really look at it, in those 14 losses, I think eight of them were either by utter collapses by the bullpen or a a defensive miscue that cost them the game. So that tells you that they're right there, that they're right there. And the division has stayed right there for them. So moving forward, if you can, if Dombrowski and, and Sam Fold can 
make some minor improvements to the bullpen, and it doesn't need to be a ton, maybe two players, and then everybody else kind of slots where they belong. Um, you have the you have the, the starting pitching. Uh, you, you have the lineup when it's healthy that you can win this division with 85 wins, 86 wins, and be there in the playoffs. And guess who you're playing in the first round? You're probably playing Milwaukee, and you're avoiding the teams from the Western Division who all are going to have to end up beating themselves to get to the NLCS. All of a sudden, you're talking about a team that can suddenly somehow be four wins away from a World Series that probably doesn't deserve to be that close, but really could well be if, in fact, they can make a couple of small changes to make this team better. Wow. That is not where I thought we were going to start today. Crazy, oh, right? God. Okay, let's let's walk this back a little bit. And I know that you watch every game or pretty much every game. Certainly, yep. I'm required to watch every game. So, you know, I think we've been looking at, at mostly the same product here. Um, I see it a little bit differently, I guess. You know, I understand what you're saying. Like, they've played, I think, team-wide uh, a better brand of baseball. You know, even in those losses, even those gruesome gut-punch losses, like, you have to do some good things to even get to that point. So, I agree mm-hmm. with you. You know, they've positioned themselves in a lot of games to really be better than what they've been. You know, on the, the other hand, I say to myself, well, you know, there's a reason that they've gone on to lose these games. And you've referenced the bullpen and the defense. And I can kind of buy into the idea that you can rectify this bullpen by going out and adding one or two guys. Maybe it doesn't have to be the Craig Kimbrels of the world, right? You go out and you get the guy like Brandon Workman and the Heath Hembrys of last year, and, and they actually work out, you know? Right. And, I, and that's what they have to do. They have to go get that, that lower-level, cheaper guy that, that has some experience, and it actually has to hit. And, like, teams do hit on these types of deals – at the deadline every year that, you know, it happens. It doesn't necessarily happen for the Phillies, but it does happen and it can happen. And maybe it happens with Dave Dombrowski where you kind of, you know, I don't want to say you lose me, but where I start to say, okay, well, hold on a second is you look at this team from a defensive standpoint. And last night, you know, they're rolling and they're, they have an opportunity to, to really take advantage, win a series last night with their best guy on the mound. D.D. Gregorius, you know, boots a ball in the first inning and the floodgates open. And some of that's on Zach Wheeler, too. Like, he's also got to find a way to get out of that inning, right? Like, nobody has Zach Wheeler, Wheeler to, the, you know, then give up, you know, three more runs after the error happens. But right. these things keep happening on a consistent basis. And, like, the thing that I struggle with is how do you, how do you fundamentally change the, the defensive DNA of this team at this point in the season? The answer is you can't. So right. – how do you expect this to get better? Like, it seems like they, they have a tendency to shoot themselves in the foot, and I just don't see that changing. No, I, and I think that that's, that's certainly a, a concern, Bob. Um, you know, I, I look at it and say that there has to be a mentality that changes. Um, and not, you know, it, it, it's funny when you see other teams make an error and then it doesn't cost them as often as it costs the Phillies. And, and I almost think that there's kind of like this mental breakdown, like, oh, no, here we go again. And then the pitcher gets too – tries to get too cute and then gives up a couple hits, and then it, the floodgates open, and you give up a big inning off of one mistake. And it could be the dumbest mistake, like Reese Hoskins having his sunglasses on top of his hat when the ball's thrown at him in the sun, right? I mean, <laughs> like something so stupid like that, that's not – you know, it, it, yes, I mean, obviously the sun got in his eyes – 
but if you were just wearing your sunglasses, you would have been able to see the ball. And that that happened in New York, I believe, right? And then that that play, yeah, that play yeah, Alvarado, right? Talk to some people after the fact, and yeah. they kind of had indicated, like, well, how often do you see infielders with their glasses down on plays like that? And I guess the thought was sort of like, <laughs> you know the optics of that play were ridiculous, but like that, that was a very like low percentage. I get it. Expect that to happen. I but get I agree. It. It's just like, that's the thing with the Phillies, right? Like that play is an illustration of what we've seen this year. Where you are just like, how do they do these consistently like head scratching surrender Cobra type of moments? Right. Like, and even like last night's game where you're watching, where you're watching the Phillies try to get back into the game. They spot the Cubs five runs. And, you know, they cut it to 5-3, and here comes Alec Boehm trying to make an aggressive play going towards second base, which, you know, you can argue the wisdom of whether or not he should have even tried to stretch that, but he represents the tying run into scoring mm-hmm. position. So, you know, you can't knock him for the aggressiveness and the hustle, but it's a horrible slide. Like, objectively, it's a horrendous slide. There's two different ways that you're going to teach that at the high school level, the college level, professional level. You're either going to do a pop-up slide started earlier you still have your momentum going to the bag and you just hit it with your foot and you pop right up or you're going in head first and i know a lot of people are hesitant to do head first you know for a variety of reasons jamming thumbs jamming fingers but to go into the bag over slide it with your foot and then have to hook back with your hand is it's just it's horrible and Mm -hmm. in this case like i don't know if it costs the phillies a game it might have it certainly could have changed the complexion of the game and they just have this annoying knack to do the stupidest thing possible at the worst time possible. Well, and, I, I, and, and I, I think here's a question for you, Bob, and, and I think that I think I know the answer to it. Um, let's say Bohm is safe there, and I guess the next batter is Jankowski, right? And so let's just say Jank. Well, they probably would have walked Jankowski to get to to Wheeler, and then it becomes an interesting situation. Do you pinch hit for Wheeler with the bases loaded? Two you, outs. You certainly do. Right. Okay. Yeah. So change. I guess it changes everything because the question I was going to ask was: If the Phillies tie it five-five, are you pulling Zach Wheeler when you pull when Girardi pulled him? I like I didn't I, I didn't necessarily have a major problem with it. I probably keep Wheeler in the game, but I kind of understand why he pulls him there. Um, but I think it's a different mentality down two runs as opposed to being in a tie game, right? You know what I loved about last night's game is that what happened on the field, like we can talk about last night's game and break it down like as a post-game reaction show. But I, I think what we saw last night is the, the crux of the Phillies issues uh, in a, like from a, a big picture standpoint. So Joe Girardi, you know, so at, like go back to Boom slide. It's a bad slide. And you, you look at Twitter and like, I, I know that Twitter isn't like the absolute representation of how people view or think about your sports, but you know, people are like, well, Joe Girardi doesn't teach these guys fundamentals. Like, major league managers aren't responsible for teaching a major league mm-hmm. player how to slide into second base. Now, like, <laughs> somewhere along the way, like, is that the Phillies developmental staff, the minor league level? Is that, you know, base running instruction not being, you know, hammered home when these guys first get into the system? Does that fall on, you know, college coaches? Like, somewhere along the way, though, like, that becomes the player's responsibility to know how to do the absolute most fundamental things. That's the way I view that, and it, it's not just there. Like I, I look at Bohm fielding the ball at third, and the guy is never square. 
No. He always turns his body to field it kind of sideways. And then you wonder, and then he wonders why he's making the errors that he's making. And it's like, that's something that you learn at the, before the high school level. Right. I mean, you learn to, to get your body in front of the ball and it's just, it's just weird to me, you know, and I, you know, it's not just the Phillies. I mean, I think that this is epidemic throughout a lot of baseball. I see a lot of teams with guys over sliding bags now more so than ever before. Um, it, it happened to the Phillies. What game was it? Uh, they play at third base sliding into third and, and he overslid the bag sliding. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they, they caught him on the swipe tag going by, you know, and I forget who the, who the, the runner was. Uh, yeah, on that play. Um, but still, same thing. It cost him an inning. I mean, those things, you're right. They certainly add up, Bob. And, 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 and it's, it's a frustration. But, I mean, they, things like that happen in baseball. And, and so, when, what, you know, I know I came out here with, like, the, the, the rainbows and sunshine with my, with my suggestion that they can fix this and, and get far further than anyone would expect. Um, it, those things have to be overcome. So when they happen, when, when and I think the point I was trying to make was at the very beginning of this was I, you see other teams make these errors and for whatever reason, they don't snowball on them like they snowball on the Phillies. And I think that that's something that the, that's something that is correctable. That's something that the Phillies can fix is not allowing mistakes to become so critical. I, and I think, and I, and I think that that's 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 to me that's on the that's on the manager, right? To kind of get his team in the right frame of mind to not let something like that blow it up. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, and I I, I believe that is on the manager. I, I believe that there's a certain tone or a certain vibe where you know if you have the right mentality instilled in your players, it's like a hey, that ain't no thing, you know, let's get the next one, right? With this team, I feel like you can kind of almost see it sometimes where something goes wrong and you go, they know they're in trouble. You saw that in the uh, the New York series, right, where Reese Hoskins makes an error at the very, very mm-hmm. beginning of the inning, and it didn't have to lead to a, a blown lead in the ninth uh, against Jacob DeGrom after your team kind of, you know, slays the dragon. But, like, you knew it. You saw the error. You knew what the end result was going to be. Hector Neris, even in a game you knew the Phillies were going to lose on Sunday, one little thing goes wrong in that ninth inning against the Padres, and then, holy shit, it goes from being almost a perfect inning to one of the most embarrassing innings of the season. And it's just like that's the thing. You're right. There's a snowball element with this team. Uh, you can definitely see it. I actually thought that, you know, frankly, I thought I saw it last night in the very first inning. You know, I don't mind if you have a third baseman standing at shortstop and you want to open, you see a gaping hole down the third baseline, you want to bunt. I don't hate that from a baseball standpoint. I don't love it when I have a guy, though, that's coming off a five-hit night, mm-hmm. who's finally feeling it, gets himself into a 3-1 count against a candy-ass righty, and he's up there trying to, you know, think about bunting. Then he gets himself into a full count, pitch later he's out. It's just like right off the bat, like, man, what a tone setter. And you can, you can see it, like I said, with this team, when something like that happens or something silly happens, and then you have the Gregorious error on, uh, on top of it, you go, here we go. You know where this game's heading. And they've got to figure it out. And it's, it's on the manager, but it's also on the players too. And that's my one issue with this core group, uh, one of several issues, I guess. It's just that they just don't have that killer edge, that resiliency that you need to – or they haven't shown it, I should say, to be fair, that you need to be a consistent winner. Yeah. Um, 
you're right. And, and, you know, it's funny, you know, you look back to the beginning of June, they won seven of nine. And then they, you, you look back to the you know, beginning of this month and they win four or five before last night. So you see that they're, they can put together stretches of games where they're, cons- where they're consistently good enough, but they don't have enough of those stretches because what ends up happening is between them is where things go awry. And so those, those good stretches are usually uh, being, being done to, to cover up bad stretches it's it's like okay it's not like that the Phillies are going seven and two and then going four and four and then going four out of five right I mean there's no that's there's not that 500 middle it's they go two and six in between and it's like okay now we've got to turn it back around again and and that's where the frustration has been and so but I I think that those things are correctable I think those things are fixable and the division, for whatever reason, for whatever reason, is just not pulling away from them. Now, this is going to be an interesting weekend because the Phillies have to go play. I mean, they have one more with Chicago tonight, but then they got to go play a full weekend in Boston against a good Red Sox team. And the Mets have the Pirates yeah. at home for four. So this could get away quickly. But if the Phillies find themselves going into the break kind of where they are right now, how the season plays out in the second half favors the Phillies over anyone else in this division because the schedule is so darn easy. They have so many games left against bad baseball teams, and they should be able to beat beat up on them like they did on the Cubs the first two games. And, you know, yeah, we get upset about losing the game last night, but if the Phillies go out and win tonight and get three out of four against the Cubs, that's a successful series, no yeah. matter how you slice it. You, you took the words right out of my mouth. I said, you know – what they can't do, though, is they can't you, – They actually, they can and they may. But you look at what they've done, and, and it was a good start to the series, and you, you're starting to feel kind of good about where they're at. And then you can't split now. You, you can't split. You've, you've got to win the series. It's something that they don't do. They don't win on the road. So to go out and, like, I don't care how poor or poorly Chicago's played over the last two weeks – you go out to Wrigley Field and you win three out of four games and you just can't argue with it. You know, you can get annoyed by certain results, certain things that happen in the third game, but you come back and you win the finale and you got to feel good about that. And it'll be very interesting to see what they do at Boston because you're talking about a very good Red Sox team that can really, really swing it. But if they go up there and compete, they get to, you know, the all-star break, they're right at 500. Yeah, I I agree that things open up in the second half, but it's where it gets interesting is what they're going to do between now and the trade deadline when you get to July 30th. I I really don't think you can have the conversation. I hear people trying to have it like, should they be buyers or should they be sellers? It it seems like a cop out, but what they should do at the deadline, I think, is squarely predicated upon what happens over the next 20 days. I mean, I think that the next 20 days are going to reveal exactly what the Phillies should try to do. Yeah, you're not wrong with that. The thing that bothers me, though, about it is that it has to be that long. You have to wait till the deadline. Like, you recognize what the problem is now. Right. So I why- wish you could go fix it right now. Yeah, and, and you know. And I understand. It takes two to tango. And, and the other team is probably, whoever you're targeting, that other team is probably like, well, I want to wait. I want to wait and see, get the best offer I can get. And so I get it, but at the same time, it's like, man, if you just go out and get those one or two players now, you might be able to not have to worry about the deadline 
you know, it's funny how every year, like, better than. People, you know, uh, GMs and teams, they, they take that mentality. Like we've got to wait and see, we got to wait and see where we're at, where, you know, you end up missing the playoffs by two or three games. You make the deal that you need to make at the deadline, but if you would have been able to make it two or three weeks earlier, you might've saved yourself, you know, it could be the difference, right? Like, so, and I'm sure that they, they probably put some feelers out there. They've, they probably had some preliminary discussions and, and maybe tried to expedite this process. But as you said, it does take uh, two to tango. You know, one of the things that I, I looked at with this bullpen, and again, uh, you know, we've, we've texted during games and stuff. I just have to flat out say, like, I like Joe Girardi. Uh, I, I don't think he's a bad manager. I don't think he's a poor manager. I know that he's, He's taken a ton of heat uh, this season because the Phillies have been an underachiever. They just, they have been. And, and Joe has not been good. I, I, I wouldn't say that Joe's performance in this individual season has really been good because you ask yourself the question, like, well, what has he really done well? You know, where has he made a difference for this team, especially when you compare it against, you know, and I, I don't want to make this a Gabe Kapler thing. So like, let's not talk about Gabe Kapler, but I, I think it's fair to look at, where were the Phillies previously? Where are they at now? Where is Joe Girardi making a difference? And I do think it's pretty difficult to put your finger on a, a tangible difference that you see in terms of the, the product on the field. My, my big disappointment with the manager is in the way he, ma- he manages the starting pitchers into the bullpen. Yeah. I, I mean, it, and it's not necessarily the complete management of the bullpen. I think, I think he's trying to find what works out there, right? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't blame him for... You know, all right, we started with Naris and we try Alvarado and then we try Suarez. I don't think that that's poor management. I think that that's just trying to find a guy that's going to work for you. But what I don't like is I don't like his decision making process when you're coming from the starting pitcher going into the bullpen. That's where I think he's been made the most mistakes. I think he's either pulled starting pitchers too early or if he's let them go up to the point that they need to come out, he's gone to the wrong guy first. And I think that that's what's hurt them. Those decisions have hurt the Phillies more than anything else. And so if you're really looking for something, you know, that you can pin on the manager, I think that that's where it is. And it's probably, Bob, at this point, four or five games that he, you know, you could probably say, yeah, if you would have done something the other way around, either kept the pitcher in or instead of going to stinky David Hale or stinky Neftalo Feliz and done somebody else in that spot, you probably would be in a, in a much better situation right now. I can illustrate for you a couple different instances in where I've just actively said, and I'm not talking about like armchair quarterback revisionist history, where in the moment I'm like, I, I hate this. I hate this. And, and you mentioned a couple of them. You know, when they were in Cincinnati uh, two Mondays ago and they had the lead and the Neftali Feliz inning happened, I didn't hate the fact that he went to Neftali Feliz. I know it was the first time he pitched in a game in four years, but when you look at where they were at with their bullpen, the utter lack of production that they had. Could he have stuck with Bailey Falter in that inning? I believe it was the seventh inning. Probably. He was at 66 pitches, I think, when he was removed in that game. He might have had a little bit more in the tank. Their judgment, their evaluation was that, no, he's done. Going in the tally Feliz doesn't drive me insane, given how he performed with the Iron Pigs leading up to that point and the fact that the bullpen stinks. So let's try something new. But where you lose me, and what I don't understand is, you know, two nights later, Three nights later, whatever it was, you're playing the Marlins. Aaron Knoll is getting peppered. Now it's a tie game. Miami has all the momentum, and you need to get out of that fifth inning at 5-5. And you go to a guy who was bad a couple nights before, 
who has not pitched at the major league level in four years and also has no confidence coming into that spot. Like there's just a total lack of feel for context in that scenario. And predictably, you know, four minutes later, it's eight, five Marlins and the game's gotten away from you. Mm -hmm. So to like go back to Naftali Feliz in that spot, is insane going to David Hale in that game against the nationals where things got out of hand before he was DFA was insane. Mm -hmm. Like there's just no feel going to Alvarado in the opener against San Diego on Friday night, a game that they win, right? Jose Alvarado is not good enough to pitch wraparound innings to have Jose Alvarado go out there, close out the eighth, and then have him get back up and pitch the ninth. Like what has Jose Alvarado demonstrated in his makeup in his command that you would say, yeah, you know what? Let's go to him for a wraparound inning. And then, by the way, you've eliminated the ability to use him the next night. And he's one of your high leverage guys. Like, I don't understand it, man. I just don't. Well, here's what I don't understand. And maybe you can, you know, since you're down there around the team, you can help me with this. And I'm going to I'm going to tie it into the two things in together. Um, What you were just talking about. And then the situation where they had an off day on Monday. This goes back to the national series. They had an off day on Monday. They pitched or played on Tuesday, and the bullpen had to be used because that was the Wheeler short start, correct? And then, um, so I think, but the only guys who pitched more than one inning were Suarez, who pitched two, and Brogdon, who pitched two. Then on Wednesday, when they need to go to the bullpen again and everything implodes, and, and you guys asked Girardi after the game, uh, he said, well, I had four pitchers who were unavailable to me, and they have an off day on Thursday. So the question I have here is, is this Joe mismanaging usage or being uber conservative? How much of this is Caleb Cotham, or how much of this is really an organizational edict that the, the coach, that the, general, that the manager and the pitching coach have to follow? From what I understand, I, to answer your question, I think it's collaborative. You know, I do think it's collaborative, but – from what I understand, this isn't entirely a new thing. You know, I think that some uh, Yankees press has, has had similar questions in the past. So I think that Joe is certainly the one at the end of the day who has the authority to kind of make that ultimate decision. They constantly leave themselves short. He constantly goes into games with short options and a already bad bullpen. And I, I agree with you. And it's one of the more perplexing things. You know, maybe there's some data. Maybe there's a true belief that by doing this, that they're going to see an uptick in production. Guys aren't going to get hurt in the second half. Maybe their bullpen will just naturally be a a better performer simply because it it hasn't been utilized or strained the way that some other managers may lean on, you know, their best guys. I, I don't know, man. We'll see. Time will tell. But, yes, I agree with you. It's definitely one of the, the more baffling things that we've seen. You know, and then as, as critical as I've just been of him, because I don't see that killer instinct. I don't see consistent concentration. I don't see that, that vibe, that belief that you're supposed to get from a manager. I have questions about the bullpen management, but I will say for every time that you want to say, man, the guy really doesn't know how to press the right buttons or has really struggled to press the right buttons. Part of the reason is because he doesn't have the right buttons to press. Like, Mm -hmm. and this was always my defense of Gabe Kapler. You you could talk about Gabe Kapler and and all the different things that he did wrong. But at the end of the day, there were some very obvious shortcomings with the way that the roster was constructed. Like it's not Joe Girardi's fault that they can't catch a baseball. You knew going into the season, this defense was going to stink and they've, they've been worse than I think that you could expect, but it's not Joe Girardi's fault. The fact that he, you know, he has not gotten the most out of whatever they have out the bullpen. Like, I think that's fair to say, but they, he doesn't have anything out there. It's not a good bullpen. It's very obvious. 
So it's, it's a twofold problem in, in that way, you know, and, and maybe they can patch that element of it up because I do agree with your, your overall point that if you can, if you can get some stabilization to this bullpen and you just, you, you reduce the blown saves, the, the late collapses by even, I don't know, 20%. This division hasn't ran away. They have a light schedule. It's possible. Yeah. But yeah. I'm not, I'm not betting on it. Like if you said to me right now, Hey Bob, I'll give you, you know, whatever it is at DraftKings right now, plus 300 on the Phillies to win the NL East. You're getting pretty good odds. I'm good. That's me. And, and, that, and that's all right. And, and I, and I get it and you're not alone. And I, I know I'm kind of in the minority here. Um, but, but I think I, I think I see what they see. I think, you know, I saw that interview that Jim Salisbury did with Dombrowski and, and he said that, you know, we're a competitive team right now in, for this division. And this was done, I think, I think that interview was in early June and he did that yeah, interview. And they've, yeah. and they've shown it since a couple of times during the rain delays. Yeah, yeah. No more uh, signing Harper or whatever it is. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but, like, I, I'm, a, I'm in agreement with them. And, I, you know, and I look and I say, the Phillies have, the, you know, could they use another starting pitcher? Sure. But, you know, Velazquez has been okay just okay, but okay, and that's all right for a four or five. And and I don't know, maybe Matt Moore is going to stabilize a little bit here. I mean, that's kind of you know, maybe wish, wishing against <laughs> wishing against hope. But uh, but no, but seriously, but having three guys that you can rely on on a on a weekly basis um, to give you good starts, plus a lineup that when it's healthy is solid. And when you look at their numbers individually, I mean. And everybody was ripping Harper this week, and I didn't get that either. Like, I was – there was a that, big that thing is, on talk radio, and I was like – Philadelphia <laughs> – like, listen, you can be you can be somewhat underwhelmed with Bryce Harper if you thought he was coming here and hitting 45 home runs and, and going to win MVPs. And he's not that – but the guy's been a pretty good player. To, to do, like, the whole, like, it's his fault that he – the solo home run thing, like, it's insane, man. Yeah. That is like of all the things, if all the things that you could focus on with this team for that to be the thing that like we're going to now latch on to is like, oh, he's not a clutch player because it's just it's crazy, man. Like that's that's one thing I, I wholeheartedly disagree with that, that, you know, yeah. that entire discussion. Well, you know, and the other thing, was, you know, and again, this was this was a talk radio point for a couple of days this week. They're saying, well, you know, he's just not clutch. He, he only, you know, uh, he only puts up numbers when it, the game doesn't matter or, you know, when it's there's nobody on base. And I sat there and said, I wonder what Bar Bryce Harper's numbers are as a Philly as a Philly with runners in scoring position. He's hitting 318, 452 on base, 1.037 OPS. I mean, come on. I mean, what more can you ask from the guy? Not to I mean, mention, that's, that's glaringly obvious, like glaringly <laughs> obvious that, that part of the, I mean, the primary reason that the, the runs batted in, the RBI production, run production hasn't been there is because the table setters just don't get on base. I mean, we went through spells this season where Reese Hoskins, you know, would go multiple weeks <laughs> without a hit, you know, yeah. like, he he's gone through rough stretches, Reese Hoskins. Um, he's been through red hot at times though as well. Uh, Odubel Herrera, you know, after a really good start, has cooled off. And you know, like morality stuff aside, like I think Odubel Herrera represents their best option out in center field. But at some point, if a guy's not getting on base at the top of the order, you got to flip him. So Andrew McCutcheon in April at the leadoff spot did nothing. There's been a revolving door of of just 
you know, a lack of production at the top of the order. And I think that that has more to do with what yeah. we see from Bryce Harper than anything else. A hundred percent. And then when you look at him, you say, well, what about Segura? And it's like, well, okay, Segura has been great, but Harper missed two weeks he's missed with injury. Games. I mean, Bryce Harper has and when, and when, right now and he's missed 20 games. You know, and when he, and when he came back, Segura was out. So you didn't even have Segura at the top of the lineup to get on base for him, right? I mean, that was that was that was also part of it. Yeah, I mean, and so listen, he could do more. He could be more consistent. You know, the injuries are a concern. The fact that he's missed twenty games is a concern. I'm not telling you that Bryce. We should be erecting statues of Bryce Harper right now, but I just think when you evaluate this team across the board, that is not the, the primary concern. And I believe, though, with the, the four hits, he was four for four with runners in scoring position on Tuesday night. It does. It inflates the average. Like, he went from hitting 222 with runners in scoring position, I think, to 292 or 227 to 292. So, like, that one night really helps. So, you can pick him apart if you want, but I just don't think that when you go through the hierarchy of issues here, that that's really at the top of it. But what I will say for the, the positivity element of things you get guys back in your lineup. You get Gregorius back in your lineup, Gene Segura back in your lineup, and it lengthens things out. And it does. It creates a much tougher lineup to navigate top to bottom. Guys don't feel like they have to do as much. They're not trying to replace production. You can kind of – if you're an opposing pitcher and you just look at it and you go into your prep work before a start, you say, like, okay, this is going to be a challenge. This is a pretty good lineup. It's a deep lineup. There's not three or four gaping holes in it. That's where I think the Phillies can kind of start to say, like, all right, we've got our full team back. We can really grind through good at bats. We did this last season when we scored the fifth most runs per game in the sport. We can score runs. We can out-hit some of our other deficiencies. The flip side of this is you talk about three guys that you can count on in the top of your starting rotation. And this is the one thing I did want to get to. You starting to get concerned at all about the performance of Aaron Nola because I am, and I'm not telling you that he's he's not a good pitcher or that he won't be better than he's been, but the guy has a four five three ERA right now through 18 starts. There were as of yesterday only nine qualified starting pitchers in all of baseball that had a worse ERA. The WHIP. A lot of base runners, he's struggling to get through innings with two outs. He can't close the door on certain innings. It looks like even in his good starts or where he goes on good runs, he quickly loses his feel often for, for the off-speed stuff. Fastball command's been spotty at times. I, I've been thoroughly unimpressed with the performance of Aaron Nola this season. Well, he's certainly taken a step back, right? I mean, and this is – and this is a shame because, you know, I thought that the, the start against he's had, he's had some incredible starts this against year. The Yankees was ace. The, Car the Cardinals, the, Cardinals the, Yankees, was awesome. the, the Mets, the 10 strikeouts in a row. I mean, um, I mean, just really, really had had some ace level starts. And then it, I, I kind of felt like his start. Um, was it the, was it the Padres? Was it against the Padres? Not the, or was the not the one. Against the, he struggled against the Cubs too, but they won that game. It was um, the, the one before the Cubs, whoever the Miami, one was. That was the Miami start. Miami. Cali Feliz in the fifth. Yeah, yeah that's it. This was the Miami start. Um, like that game, he was fantastic for four innings. Like, and he had, what, another eight strikeouts or nine strikeouts? I mean, he was – we're like, here we go again. Noel's got it again. Okay, he's figured it out. And then all of a sudden, he just, he just stopped throwing that. He couldn't get the fastball uh, located. And then they, the, the Marlins were just <clears throat> sitting on his breaking stuff. And just started smacking him around, and he had a bad inning, and it kind of imploded on him. And 
So yeah, like those things. I mean, I don't think it's it's gotten to the point where, you know, Aaron Nola's a uh oh every time he comes out there. But I think that there it, it's it's certainly gotten beyond the point where you feel really confident. Okay, it's Aaron Nola's time to start. You, you're just hoping now that you get the good Nola and long enough in the game to win it and not get the the, the spotty Nola that has you know, cost you a couple games here. Yeah, I mean, you go back and, and pitchers have these runs, you know, except for the, the truly elite guys. But seven starts since June 1st, he's pitched through the sixth inning twice. Mm-hmm. And one of those starts was against Chicago the other night where he was staked a, a massive lead early and was re- really not very impressive uh, through much of that start. So, you know, we're talking about a, a good two month or, you know, a month and a half run here where you really you, you can't feel great about what you've seen from him. The Yankees start specifically aside. And he said he was good against New York, but he also went five and a third innings in that game. I mean, you know, so again, like you for me, like when you get a guy like Aaron Nola and you have this bullpen <laughs> that's that's such a problem. Like I need more length from the guy. Well, I mean, but did you but do you blame Nola for that? I mean, he's had all those strikeouts. strikeouts. Right, the strikeouts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like, I don't. It would be disingenuous for me to say that at some point you have to just induce more efficient weak contact. Like in a perfect world, you right. would put that in. But like, yeah, if your stuff is dominant to the point where you're generating that many strikeouts, I can't fault you for it. But I just don't know, man. Like, I don't feel – I guess it's a feel thing for me. Uh, and, and, you know, there are numbers. I was digging around some of the splits and, I, you know, the two-out thing specifically is career numbers versus this season with two outs and in innings. I mean, it's it's bad. Um, but it's just a feel thing for me. Like, I don't watch him and, I'm, and, and say, like, wow, I'm really confident in what I'm watching here. Like, I, I know that – you know, I just – I feel like even the other night, I'm like, the way that he's been going lately, I'm like, this game could get weird, you know? And that's mm-hmm. not something that you would previously have thought with Aaron Nola on the mound, whether or not that's fair. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, you know, I, I felt like Jim Salisbury asked a really great question to Joe last night. And, he, you know, he was – he prefaces by saying he was not doing it to be a jerk. But really, is one more batter that much of a big deal? for for a pitcher like if you're thinking about taking him out do you can you make him go one more batter and i say the same thing about nola like in that mets game like i know that his pitch count was up and but i mean when he's pitching the way he's pitching and dominating a lineup and they can't touch him i mean they couldn't even get make contact on him and i know the pitch counts a little high is one or two more batters that much more dangerous like, re- really, what's the risk-reward? risk, risk reward? I mean, that's a game you have to win. It's a close game. Don't you, don't you lean on the guy who's your best, one of your best pitchers pitching the way he's pitching? And so, like, like, I look at it sometimes in that way, too, Bob, and say, I think that these guys, like, I thought Wheeler was pissed last night. I don't he think got he was thrilled. No, you could tell he was not happy. After the game, he said it's Joe's decision. Yeah. He wasn't like, oh, yeah, I totally understand. That was great. He had his back. He had his back to the manager as he came out to the mound to get the ball from him and stuff. So, like, I think that there are times when these starting pitchers aren't even being asked how they feel. And, they, and Real Muto is not being asked, what are you seeing? I, I think it's just being – I think it's – this is why I asked that question of you a little bit earlier. Is this organizational? Is this an organizational edict? Like, you know what? We need, we, our analytics tell us 
you got to take this guy out at this point or else it's going to go bad. Like, I mean, I don't know. I mean, and, and I, I question well, that if, it, now, if in fact that's the case. It's happened now twice with Zach Wheeler. It happened in the, with the Cubs. He's at 97 pitches. Mm-hmm. It happened on Friday night against the Padres. He's 114 pitches at that point. Right. So, you know, again, both situations had a chance to maybe get that final out of an inning. Joe pulls him. You know, I, I don't know. I, I really don't. I, I have to tell you, though, I think that there is a little bit of concern about overusage, the amount that they're going to have to rely on these guys in the second half uh, when you, you stack it up against 2020 and the fact that it was an abbreviated season and the workload wasn't there. I know across the sport that is something that is discussed. It's got people very on edge. And I do think that maybe at times there's a little bit of an oversensitivity or overreaction. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we talked about the two times with Nola that he got pulled early. Uh, Eflin's been pulled early. We've had, you know, we've talked about that too. I mean, like the, I think there was the one game he only had 82 pitches and he was pulled and he was pitching great. And, the, and the bull- Right. Yeah. And the bullpen bullpen just kind of blew that one too. Um, Cause you had a chance to beat DeGrom and, and they lost the game. Um so, like, I mean, you know, that's why I say the that's the one thing, you know, I listen to all the anti-Girardi stuff, and for the most part, I just shrug it aside. But but that's where I'm not on board with the manager. I, I really think that he's not letting – and, you know, and to hear Dombrowski say a couple of times, both at his introductory press conference and then even in that interview with Salisbury, talking about how he wants his starting pitchers to go longer. He's a believer in – starting pitchers going longer to hear the the president of baseball operations say that. And then to watch what's happening on the field, those two don't sink, right? They don't sink up. And and there have been multiple occasions where the starting pitcher has come out early and the bullpen has blown the game. And I, I sat there and said to myself, I wouldn't have taken the starting pitcher out. I just wouldn't have. And maybe you don't have 22 blown saves. Maybe your bullpen isn't as taxed. Maybe you're, you're not short in the bullpen if you let your starting pitchers go a little bit longer. What's the difference between 97 and, 100 and, and 110 pitches, really? I mean, is it, is it going to kill you to have them throw another 13 pitches? Like, I don't know. I mean, I, that's- I, it, it's hard to identify where that line is. I remember on a Saturday morning after the Phillies beat the Padres in the game where Wheeler was removed in the eighth, uh, Howard Eskin was upset on the radio and he was talking about how Juan Marichal, you know, pitched in the sixties and would throw, <laughs> you know, five straight games where he would go nine innings. And I'm like, well, all right. Like it's not the 1960s. These guys are throwing with way more velocity, way more, yeah. torque, way more, you know, wear on the arm and all of that stuff. But uh, you know, it comes back to just a, a fine line of, you know, what's the difference between 97 and 107 and 112, you know, where do you draw the line? Um to kind of move things along before we get out of here, uh, I do have two quick things. And I, I want to come back real quick to Alec Boom. Uh, we, we started talking about him a little bit. You know, the the average after the month of May uh, was, was just atrocious. The, the defense has been a continuing issue. He started to swing the bat a little bit better in the month of June. And, and in the beginning of July here, uh, the average was up, hit over 300 in the month of June. But there has been a complete absence of power and you know one of the things that we've talked about with Alec Boehm is like oh the approach and you know he's willing to use all fields and and that's great uh he's still only 127 126 127 games into his professional or major league career and I just note that for proper context here what is your read on him like I don't think he's a third baseman I think we all kind of agree with that Mm -hmm. but offensively are we starting to get a little bit concerned that 
you ha- you have a guy that's eventually going to either have to play left field or first base, and he can't hit the ball into the gaps or drive it over the fence. So I, I, I'm not at the level of concern yet with that because I, I have a feeling that the Phillies actually approached this one the right way um, for once. And <laughs> they usually don't when it comes to developing players approach it the right way. But I think that what happened, I think Bohm got, got to such a bad way. He was, his habits had become terrible. He was swinging at first pitch almost every at bat. Um, there was, it was an easy way to get him out every time he was Oh two, pretty much every time he came to the plate. I mean, for that, you know, in May, it was like so frustrating to even watch him at the plate. Um, and then all of a sudden they kind of, you could see that they kind of changed. They shortened him up a little bit. You know, he's, he's got a, his, his approach has changed. He's not as much first pitch hacking as he used to be. Um, and, and I, you know, if it means, Hey, just get start getting hits again. Just start getting hits again. Just start, you know, putting the ball in play and 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 getting on getting on base and building that confidence back up. If that's what it takes, and it takes a couple months for the power to come back, I'm cool with that. Like you know, I, he's batting seven or eight in your lineup, and all you really want him to do is is just get on base at this point. Um, if he was batting f- four or five like he was earlier in the season, and he only had five home runs with one of them coming off of a 65 mile per hour backup middle infielder, um, then I'd be more concerned. But if you're, if you're for now, if you're batting him seven or eight and getting the kind of production you're getting out of him, two hits and a walk again, even in the loss last night, I'm, I'm cool with that. And I think that that's kind of redeveloping him and teaching him how to adjust at the major league level. And, and I, so I'm cool with that. If this becomes something that's more prolonged though, Bob, and he's, uh, you know, he becomes a, 280 hitter who doesn't give you much more than 12 12 to 15 home runs then you know in his career per season then I have a problem you know then we're then we're really talking about this being a failed pick third overall yeah and I think that the reason I preface the conversation with you know he's 126 games in is to say that in a normal year, if he if he began the season at the major league level, we're we're basically in like mid August right now, you know, right. and it's really early on to to make a, a wholesale judgment of a player, say like, well, he can't do this, he's incapable of of doing this, you know. I just I wonder. It's you just would love to see here at some point like a guy just come in and and be that guy like. It's, it's probably an unrealistic ask. Like, guys go through growing pains. Like, they've, they've got to make adjustments. Pitchers are really good. They know how to, to attack. They know how they, – once you, they see you get established, they know how to counteract that. But you do – you watch a guy with that size, and he's never going to be a 35-40 home run guy. It was never designed to be. It was never built that way. Right. When you watch a guy with that size, and you've seen some of the balls that he's been able to launch at, at different points – you say he hasn't hit a home run against an actual major league pitcher in two months. You know, it, there's, you, there's gotta be some part of you that says, okay, that's a little bit concerning, especially when you pair it with the fact that he's a horrendous defensive player. And I know yeah. he made a couple decent plays last night, but he's, he's a bad defensive player. And mm-hmm. I don't, I don't see it. I don't believe that he sticks there. So he's either going to have to figure out how to run around left field, or he's going to have to make the conversion across the diamond, which by the way, isn't as easy as people seem to think it is like it's still tough down there. There's still a lot of footwork elements. He's got bad footwork at third base. Like 
it's not just like this foregone conclusion that, oh, well, because he was a bad third baseman, you can flip him across the infield and he's going to become a gold glover at first. It's possible. But, like, the defensive things have to be ironed out here as well. No, the Phillies' best bet would be for the DH to come into the NL next year. <laughs> you're, you're not kidding. Uh, that's for sure. And then that's a perfect segue. I want to just touch on this real quick before we get out of here. I, I said this on uh, another show recently. Is there was a, it a Wankel Wednesday? Was it Wankel Wednesday? Is, okay. Is there a more perplexing, stranger, weirder career from a Philly than Reese Hoskins? Like, I know, right? It's like every day it changes how you view the guy, and it, it just is amazing. Like the way that he came up out of the gates, it was so good, and then some of just these hideous stretches that he's pieced together. But then you stop and you look and, and you you see the, the, the counting numbers, so to speak, you know, on pace for nearly 40 home runs this year, on pace for nearly 40 doubles, on pace for over 100 RBIs. Like, I don't know what to think, man. I really don't. It's funny because – and this is, this is going to – I don't know if this – if you remember seeing this player play at all or not. might have been just a little bit before your time. I was watching a game with my dad uh, last week and – you know, Hoskins comes up and I, it was, he was in the middle of one of those terrible stretches where he couldn't, couldn't buy a, a hit. And then he hit a home run. I think he hit two home runs in between. And then he had another bad stretch or something along those lines. And we were in the, we we're watching the game and he said, we have Dave Kingman on the, on the Phillies. Just before my time, but yeah. I'm familiar with. Yeah. And, and Dave Kingman, who was, you know, early eighties player for the Cubs and the Mets was a perennial contender to, for the home run crown every year drove in a lot of runs but couldn't hit his way out of a paper bag otherwise was a 210 220 hitter uh, in an era when you know team batting averages were in the 260s 270s um and you know we always hated dave kingman because it was like he stinks he's either home run or nothing um and now we have a guy that's kind of like that the thing that concerns me a little bit the most about reese hoskins is one of the things that was always that we always appreciated about him was that even when he wasn't hitting, he'd find his way on base because he walked, you know, he he was, he had good vision at the plate. Where's that gone this year, man? It has gone. And I I wonder if, uh, and and to just back that up with some numbers throughout his career, even with the season factored in three fifty seven on base percentage, it's down to three ten right now. And he's not walking. And I wonder if, and one of my criticisms of him in the past was that, listen, you're in the middle of the order to be a run producer. Like you, you need to be sometimes more aggressive. I thought that there were a lot of opportunities, you know, with, with run production on the line where Reese Hoskins in the past had been too tentative, but you could then praise him for, well, look at the on-base skill, look at the Mm on-base skill. Now I think he's, he's kind of, uh, you know, passing up some, some on-base opportunities and maybe at times been overly aggressive, but then you look and say, well, here we are. We're talking about a guy that could potentially have an outside shot to, to finish the season with 80 extra base hits. Like there's, there's no balance here though. I mean, the, 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 I guess the question I have, or maybe just the, the general concern I have is that while the, the production in those, those areas is good, you still look at the, some of the, the deeper numbers. Like the guy has a 796 OPS right now, which is, fine but for a first baseman it's like that's very that's okay it's good it's goodish 
But like, it's not like the guy's OPSing 940 right now right. and he's hitting 224. I mean, he's at the end of the day, like the production is still just kind of very average there. Right. And I wonder, you know, not all numbers are, are built equally. When when things are racked up in a four game stretch and then you don't get production for seven games, it's different. You know, there there is a little bit of a different, uh, I guess brand that you're bringing there you know yeah no you're right i mean i i think that's what makes him so frustrating is that you know that he could do we we know that he could be the kind of hitter who can put the ball out of the ballpark and drive in the runs and and have those great counting stats we know he could be the kind of hitter who can have a high on base just when do you put the two together right i mean because i mean in a lot of ways when you look at what harper's doing I mean, Harper, Harper's going to have – I mean, he's not going to hit 40 and he's not going to drive in 100 this year. We already went through the reasons why. But Harper's the kind of guy who could have the same kind of numbers as Hoskins with much better on base, right? And, and, and so that's if, – if Hoskins was giving you Harper-type production, how much better is this lineup? Yeah, if he had the season, like if just his own base percentages since he's been up here, 2017, 396, 18, 354, 364, 19, 384 to shorten season last year. Very shortened season for him, too. Yeah. But uh, if 360, get, get, be 360. Get, get that on base percentage up into 350, 360 range, and then you, you give the power production that he's giving, and then all of a sudden you're talking about a really, really good player. Um. I just wonder, and, and again, I, I feel like I can't get through a conversation about the Phillies with, without bringing this up, but I just look at, at some of the deficiencies that they have, some of the chemistry issues that they have. You know, he provides value. I think there are teams around the league that would look at Reese Hoskins and say, like, this is a guy that we can win with um, for us and what we want and what we need in our lineup. Mm-hmm. Man, this would be a great piece. I just – I don't think they would do it in season, but I do wonder if the Phillies look at what they have and, and would just look at Reese Hoskins and say, like, maybe a move makes sense. I I can't get beyond it. People think when I say this that I'm saying that Reese Hoskins sucks or that I don't like him. It has nothing to do with that. It's it's quite the opposite, actually. I think he represents um, one of their flaws in a way as a, as a team, as an organization. But I also think that there's a lot of upside and value in him. And he would be one of the few guys that they have that I think you could part ways with that might really change things up for you. Yeah, I don't I don't disagree with you on that. And I know that there would probably be some fans who would be disgruntled if the Phillies decided to move Reese Hoskins, especially if it was in season. Um, but I think you're right. I think if, if the season ends up being not the success that you wanted it to be and you have to go into 2022, I think Hoskins is certainly a guy that can bring you something in return to help fill probably two spots uh, on your on your roster, maybe a positional player and a pitcher in some capacity. Um because teams do value what he brings to the table. There's two other things on that note too. You know, you talk about eventually you're going to have to pay the guy. Like Mm -hmm. even if you have issues with his play or you don't think he's a perfect player, he's going to get paid. And so that's going to be another high price player. Eventually you're going to have to commit to for multiple years. And then the other element of it is people always quick to say like, well, he's the perfect DH. Well, the Phillies aren't exactly like in desperate need of a DH at this point. JT real Muto's bat. You're going to want to keep the lineup at some point. You can probably DH him. Rafael Marchand is a very good defensive catcher. He'll probably be up here next year. I would imagine mm-hmm. Andrew Knapp won't be back. So, you know, there's going to be opportunities to play JT Romuto in a DH role. Bryce Harper has obviously demonstrated that he is, is becoming more prone to injuries. 
being able to DH him at certain points, I think is going to be in play. Alec Bohm, if the offense finally comes, is not a perfect defensive player by any stretch. Opportunities to DH him. So I'm not committing to Reese Hoskins necessarily for seven years and a hundred million dollar plus deal because the DH might be coming to the National League soon. Um, so that, that's another thing to kind of, I think, consider as well. Yeah, no, I think that you're, you're spot on with that. And it'll be, uh, it will be interesting to see how the Phillies handle that going into the offseason. But, Bob, they can, make, they can still make the run this season. They can still come within four games of the World Series. <laughs> I'm telling you, just with the, the East just kind of continues to just be out there the way it is. Let me put you on the spot then, because you gave me the roadmap to that point. Is that what's going to happen? Are the Phillies winning the NL East? I think they have a shot. I mean, I, I, you know, I want to see what Dombrowski does to fix the bullpen. If he doesn't do much, then I'll, t- you know, when we get together the next time, maybe a month from now, <laughs> um, uh, maybe I'll have a different tune because, you know, a lot will be dependent upon fixing the one, the, the probably the one part of a team that you can fix easiest in season, right? I mean, so if, if you're going to, if that's the case, if they fix the bullpen a little bit, then yeah, I'll sit there and say yeah. I think that I think that this Phillies team, because the Mets don't impress me, they really don't. And for whatever reason, Atlanta has not been able to figure it out. Atlanta's had just a, a just a parade of injuries as well. Yeah. Uh, they, you know, and that's the thing, man. Like the Braves had knocked on the door, knocked on the door, and they couldn't finish. And everyone yeah. assumes like, oh, you know, they'll be back, they'll be back at like some point. You only get so many shots. Yeah, you, know? you only get so many cracks at it. And and then I'm not, I'm not a believer in Washington. I just don't think that they have enough talent there. So no, I, I think Washington stinks. I've said yeah. that from the start. So I think that the Phillies have a shot. And if you do, just be, just the way that the season is playing out and the way that everything lines up, you got to assume that the wild cards are coming from the West, right? And that the wild card winner will play the team with the best record. That's also going to be from the West. So you're talking about if you win the NL East, you play the winner of the NL Central, who's probably the Brewers, who's, you know, the Brewers are the Brewers. I mean, you could beat the Brewers in a seven-game series or five-game series. Um, yeah, they don't hit. So, I mean, yeah, you could be four wins from the World Series. Now, I don't think even if the Phillies did get on that miracle run and got to the NLCS – I don't like them against the Dodgers or the Padres or, you know, um, no, no, man, I don't know if you watch the Marlins this week, taking it to the Dodgers. So, yeah. you know, Hey, anything's possible. Anything's possible, I guess. But I mean, but at the same time, can they win the, I mean, I, that you've mentioned the odds on the Phillies winning the divisions plus 300 right now. I, I wouldn't actually, be, I think it, it may be, it may be worse than that. I, I just kind of picked that number. Oh, up. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I, even if it, whatever it is, yeah, it might be, it might be worth a, a small wager. Okay. All right. I'm actually, uh, I'm, I'm looking at it right now. The Phillies, the Phillies are plus 800 to win the division. Mets are minus 286, Braves 600, Nationals 700, Phillies 800. Ooh, no respect from the odds makers. Put 50 bucks on that, man. Yeah. A nice little $400 payday. It's the worst way to spend 50 bucks. Yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> we'll talk to you guys sometime in uh, mid-August. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I, you know, I, I have nothing else to say about that. We'll be back. We will be back. I, I promise you we'll be back. Yes. Then I have no idea, but we'll be back. So for Anthony Sanfilippo, I am Bob Wackel. This is Crossed Up. Be sure to like, subscribe, do all those things you do wherever you get your podcast. Thanks. <laughs>